0: i <laughs> Everybody, welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 256, and tonight we find ourselves buried in the snow on top of Carathras. of course. Ironically, um, I canceled class last week because I was buried in snow at home. Uh, it was, I think really it was one of the most ironic cancellations I've ever had, where I couldn't talk about the passage where they were buried in snow because I was buried in snow. But... Uh, we'll see um, uh, We'll see what happens. Um, okay, so uh, c- a couple quick announcements before we begin. First, uh, we've had uh, an exciting first at the Signum University Press here this past week, just in the last couple days. Um, the new book by Verlin Flieger has been published. This is our first official full book uh, to be published. Uh, so uh, very exciting and deeply honored uh, that it should be Verlin Flieger's next book. If you don't know her, Verlyn Flieger is the matriarch of Tolkien studies. She is just one of the greatest Tolkien scholars uh, who has ever lived um, and just a delightful person. And this new book is a collection of stories and poems by her. Um, it's just delightful. So I strongly recommend it. A waiter made of glass. Uh, you can go to the Signum University Press web page. You can go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org uh, and go to the Signum Press page there to find it. You can also find it on Amazon and a bunch of other places as well. So right now the ebook is available. It will be available on audiobook and paperback coming up soon, next month, I believe. Um, so that is... Uh, a really exciting thing. Another really exciting thing at the Signum University Press that I recommend to you is Mike Drought's Exploring Beowulf. Um, Mike Drought is going through the entire poem of Beowulf, line by line, and doing a running commentary. And uh, so he's, 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 doing, he's doing a commentary on, like, the... Um, linguistic elements the literary elements basically Mike trout who has you know been uh, uh, publishing on Beowulf for for decades you know one of the you know a highly recognized Beowulf scholar in the world uh, is basically putting into a very engaging audio file he's a phenomenal teacher uh, and he's putting in in these series of audio files like everything he's learned about beowulf basically um it is uh uh it is enormously fun really really great opportunity so again go to the, go to uh, press.signumuniversity.org or straight to blackberry.signumuniversity.org and you can sign up uh, for a monthly subscription uh to exploring beowulf as that is um uh as that is uh, uh being released now uh it's in its i think second month now um but um uh, really, really fun. Um, so anyhow, I, I definitely want to um, uh, want to recommend that one as well. Now, the last thing I wanted to tell you about is upcoming moots. We just had Sunshine Moot down in Orlando, Florida this past weekend, uh, which was timely for me, uh, <laughs> given how much snow fell here last week, I mean. Um, but anyway, I had a wonderful time uh, seeing a bunch of you Uh, down in Florida this past week, and our next regional moot that is coming up very soon uh, is next month on Tax Day, uh, April 15th, is going to be Tax Moot. Uh, They didn't actually name it Tax Moot, uh, which I thought would be funny, though admittedly admittedly a little misleading, because apart from the date, we're not actually going to talk about taxes, but... um, uh, so Moot is happening down in San Antonio, Texas. We've been rotating around cities in Texas, and uh, we've made it all the way down to San Antonio now, which I'm uh, uh, which I, I'm looking forward to visiting. I've never been to San Antonio, so Texmoot has taken us to Fort Worth, Waco, Austin, Houston, and now San Antonio. So, uh, anyhow, so that is yes, um, the perfect opportunity to discuss Aragorn's tax policy. I have to admit Drask will be a little bit disappointed if nobody submits a proposal to talk about Aragorn's tax policy on Tax Day down at Tax Um anyhow, so um that is um uh so th- that's next month. So we're we're under a month away, now about 3 3 to 4 weeks away uh, from uh, from TexMoot. So I certainly invite you there. Of course, if you can't make it down to San Antonio, you can join us remotely. As always, all of our moots are fully hybrid. We also have some other exciting moots that are coming up uh, soon, if not quite as soon as TexMoot. We have, of course, in May, uh, Maple Moot, our first ever moot in Canada, which is official. That's happening on May 20th in Toronto. Uh, So you can register for that, and you can also, uh, there's a a call for proposals there for discussions. Um, So, yeah, so so we've got Maple Moot coming up in May. In September this year, it is now officially confirmed. We are having Cascade Moot in Portland. We are coming to the Pacific Northwest at last. Um I have been that has been uh, on my list for a long time that I was hoping we would get a chance to do. And there we are, Cascade Moot in Portland, Oregon in um uh, as I say uh, September actually right next to Bilbo and Frodo's birthday uh on the 23rd of September. And then of course we have Middle Moot coming up again in Waterloo, Iowa um in October. October fourteenth and New England Moot happening back here in New Hampshire, uh, hosted uh, by me and my friends up at Studio Lab in Derry, New Hampshire. So, um, will we rotate through the through the Pacific Northwest? Yes, I believe so. Um, I believe we, so. We're, we're I'm pretty much planning on rotating between Portland and Seattle. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. We are planning to come to Europe sometime, Sylvan. We um, um, it's been a while now since we've done a Europe moot, uh, and we're looking forward to that. We keep um failing to confirm exact plans and locations for those, but it will happen. It will happen soon. But yeah, the the uh, the hope, uh, April Daydream, to get back to you there, um, is that Seattle, um. Would love to do Seattle in 2024, so we'll do Portland this year and Seattle next year, and if we, you know, a nice little alternation back and forth would be uh, would be just the thing. Um, so, uh, anyhow, so yeah, we're we're uh, very excited. We're also working on some other exciting moots. We might get uh, back to Magnolia Moot soon. That's uh, the discussion's underway uh, for Magnolia Moot. We may uh, do a regional moot. In the Washington D.C. area uh, for a local get-together there, um, and um, one of the other sort of big things that we're working on is the possibility of doing a moot down in Brazil, um, back to the southern hemisphere again. So, so we'll see. Um, we will, um, uh, with the, you know, be more forthcoming uh, announcements on on these things as we as we work on those. But. Um, In any case, uh, the next one, as I say, the uh, one to focus on right now is Texmoot next month and also Maple Moot the month after that. And of course, in June, in the midst of it all, is Mythmoot at the end of June. And I believe we're approaching the deadline for um, early bird uh, tickets to uh, to Mythmoot. So... Uh, so yeah, if you want to join us, MythMoot at the end of the at the end of the month of June, we're going to be back at our uh, back at our, our 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 lovely old venue, uh, the National Conference Center uh, near Dulles Airport in Leesburg, Virginia. And uh, I just you know uh, MythMoot is one of the highlights of my year every year. Can't wait for that. And yeah, there's going to be kids stuff this year. It's the the big addition that we added at um, MythMoot this year. We had a bunch of families last year and. Um, excited to welcome families with uh, small kids back again we have some kids programming planned uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be really cool all right so um, let us get back let us plunge back into the snow here hoping for a Dakota moot well that would be interesting uh, I have a connection but uh, we'll see um, we'll see I have to admit Nathan, I, I did get a proposal once um, from a couple people who wanted to host a, 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 a moot in Montana and I was like I think that would be fantastic however like, who, who's going to come like how many people do we think we could get to come to a moot in Montana or the Dakotas um, uh, you can't, you, I've been there you can't fool me there aren't that many people there uh, but, um, I mean, it's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. I love it out there. I've never been to Montana yet, although I'm actually going this summer. Um, but, um, uh, but I've, uh, I've, I have been to the Dakotas and, um, it's, um, quiet. It's quiet out there and enormously flat. Um, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, all right. um, Let us, as I say, get back to the snow. Okay, so, we last, well, no. Let's just go on, because we're actually at a pretty good place for a new beginning. It's been a bit of a gap in time, in real time, since we last talked here. As the light grew stronger, it showed a silent, shrouded world. Below their refuge were white humps and domes, and shapeless deeps, beneath which the path that they had trodden was altogether lost. But the heights above were hidden in great clouds, still heavy with the threat of snow. Gimli looked up and shook his head. Carathras has not forgiven us, he said. He has more snow yet to fling at us if we go on. The sooner we go back and down, the better. To this all agreed. But their retreat was now difficult. It might well prove impossible. Only a few paces from the ashes of their fire, the snow lay many feet deep, higher than the heads of the hobbits, In places. It had been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts against the cliff. All right, so um, notice first, um, we we get two, this passage here, right, has two passages, two brief passages of description flanking this sort of the central idea here that uh, Gimli gives voice to, right? In the first paragraph, we have this sort of combination of two things. It first gives us a description of the ground, right? So you, when you wake up after a snowstorm, and of course, uh, um, for uh, those of you who have not experienced this, those of you who live in climes too warm to experience this kind of phenomenon, you um, uh, it is too bad because it's a really wonderful experience uh, to wake up and see the world transformed uh, by the snow and it is very beautiful Um, and there's a kind of peacefulness in this description Um, but it is also sort of quietly threatening as well and we immediately so while the uh, while the, the the silent shrouded world below, um, you know, is like a sort of quiet and still. It doesn't emphasize the beauty of it, but up above we have the heights still heavy with the threat of snow. It is only a pause, right? Um, so we have a silent shrouded world. Um, and I think that we, the word shroud, the word shroud is one of those words that, um, and oh yes, absolutely. Um, a snowy day, like when the snow has just fallen is immensely quiet. Um, snow muffles sound a great deal. Um, so yeah, but anyway, um, The word shroud. The word shroud is one of those words that I think has been used so often as a metaphor um, that we, in the modern world especially, have sort of lost sight of what it actually means, right? Um, A shroud, of course, is a cloth that you wrap a dead body in. So if something is shrouded, it is covered or wrapped like a corpse is covered or wrapped. Um, So if it is a silent shrouded world um, by calling the snow the blanket of snow by comparing it to a shroud it is by extension comparing the world that is wrapped in the snow to the dead body right Um, this is this is a quiet morning, but it is quiet in the way that a funeral is quiet, right? Um, and the sense... So one sense that we get is that, they, you know, that. so first of all, notice another thing. We get no people in that first paragraph. Sometimes we will get, uh, you know, think of the all the, and this has happened so many times in this chapter, um, when we've gotten these uh, sort of atmospheric descriptions, right? And very frequently, some hobbit or other, usually Frodo, sometimes Sam, has been kind of at the center of it and has been the 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 sort of transmitter of the sensory experiences to us, right? Like we'll we'll get a um, we'll get a description of the cold wind uh, knifing through Frodo's clothes, or of the warm wind from the south. Um, you know, over his face as he casts back his hood. Uh, so we'll get a, a person in the middle of the description who will, through the description of their own physical sensations, sort of cue us as to how we're supposed to feel, how we're supposed to respond to it. Um, but um, uh, anyhow, so. Um, we, but we don't get that. We don't have any. Sort of human presence. Um, in the middle uh, of this uh, paragraph. Below their refuge were white humps and domes and shapeless deeps, beneath which, beneath which, the path that they had trodden was altogether lost. White humps and domes and shapeless deeps. The word deeps, I think, is really interesting. Shapeless deeps. I assume that it's it, so it's talking about the irregularity in the snow, which, of course, really deep snow tends to smooth out um, irregularities in the landscape. Um, you know, the snow will follow the shape of the landscape pretty closely as long as it isn't too deep. But once it gets above, um, you know, about six inches or so, about 15 centimeters, um, it, uh, it starts to kind of smooth things out. And all of the little irregularities of the land uh, tend to get uh, smooth. This looks like more than a meter of snow. Um, and uh, so therefore, I think that we, um, you know, by then, when you get that much snow, really it's only very significant um uh it's really only very significant features that will stick out from it so the the humps and domes that they're seeing are probably things like you know massive boulders that would still stick up right uh and cause a hump or a dome um and the shapeless deeps i su- i suppose would be um you know like not chasms like you know cliffs or something like that those would still be cliffs, um, but you know places where there was like a gap between two rocks, like that. Their path probably followed up or something, um, but uh, but you wouldn't really be able to see it um, see it very very clearly. Um, yes, actually, Jackie, my uh, uh, my sister in law lives in Lake Tahoe, so I've heard all about that. Yeah, um, things like. You know, houses and mountains being buried under the snow out there. Um, yes, yes, uh, uh, that's uh, been keep getting sent uh, sent some pictures of that. Um, but notice again the 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 cues that we are receiving in this paragraph. Um, notice the word refuge. Below their refuge. Right, they're on this island. It's like a reverse island, right? Um, unlike, you know, an island sticking up out of the sea, they're like a, a dip down, the only place where there's bare ground under them um, uh, because of the fire, right? Um, in the midst of all of the uh, of all of the uh, of all of the the, the, the shroud of snow. Um, the path was altogether lost. The path that they had trodden was altogether lost. Notice that there's no question. They're looking at the way down. They're not looking. Uh, no, one is even, no one is even looking for the path that uh, they were aiming for up the hill, right? They're just looking wistfully down at the path that they had trodden. Their only hope of survival, which is to get back down the mountain and escape. And it is, it is altogether lost. Um But the heights above were hidden in great clouds, still heavy with the threat of snow. Um, as Gimli is going to point out, it is in no ways done. The funereal, shrouded sense, this, this with the stillness of death, really does seem to make explicit the evil intention of the snow. This is not just snow that's kind of making them, you know, think about death or fear death. This is, um, snow that was sent in order to kill them. And the mountain is brewing up more. Um, great clouds still heavy with the threat of snow. Gimli looked up and shook his head. Um, Karathras has not forgiven us. He has more snow yet to fling at us if we go on. Now, notice that for Gimli, in any case, um, there's no more question. You know, remember he was scoffing at the idea that Sauron's arm is long enough to pull down snow upon them or whatever. Gimli knows what's going on, right? This is, this is between them and Carathras. Now remember that Gandalf was leaving open the possibility that Sauron did indeed have many allies, right? Which would seem to suggest that it is possible, that it is in fact Carathras who is flinging snow at them. Um, But that doesn't mean that Boromir is entirely wrong when he is inclined to to attribute this snow to Sauron um um Bob the three quarterling, but he is um uh but he will remember how he spoke of the mountains of Moria. Um all of the legends that he has heard, right? This is his people still tell many, many stories about the mountains, including Carothros the Cruel. Karothros was called the Cruel and had an ill name, right? Um Ziv, it it, it does, there is no positive suggestion uh, that the mountain is on Sauron's side Th- nobody says that out loud I believe that Gandalf, I believe that that's, that is what Gandalf is implying is a possibility, but he doesn't dwell on it mostly I think because he doesn't want to freak people out um, but again remember the, 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 the context in which that is brought up is when Boromir, you know, is wondering if Sauron is responsible for this. And Gimli says, oh, you know, whatever. Uh, his arm has grown long indeed. If he can bring snow down uh, from the north to trouble us here. Um, what was it? 400 leagues away. Uh, and then Gandalf says his arm has grown long. Right. Uh, and he has uh, many powers and strange allies. So, again, it's, it's not stated. It is not. Um, there's no active pointing to it. But that does seem to be the thing that Gandalf is leaving open when he responds to Gimli. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Vardendale says, so Karathras, the genius loci, responds to Sauron's desires. Possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. I mean... Um, yeah, Ardent Kran says, I always imagine Karathras is the grumpy old man shouting at those damn kids to get off his lawn. On the one hand, sure, yes. Karathras is called the, called the cruel. I mean, that's what Gimli says. He's like, you know, we don't need that kind of explanation to explain this. Like, this is pretty typical Karathras behavior, right? At the same time, just weeks before, twice, the messengers from Rivendell crossed here over Carathras into Lothlorien and back. Um, Elodon and Elro here did. Um, remember those the last spies to return um, right before the company left Rivendell. Um, and, like, they did fine, right? I mean, so it, it, it's clearly not true that Carathras routinely uh, attempts to snow to death every single you know, person who tries to climb over the pass in the wintertime there seems to be a special effort being put forth there, now does that show that Carothras is in the pay of Sauron? No, no it doesn't prove that by any means um, but Carothras does seem to be making a special effort at this point um yeah, yeah. Burra Hobbit, I think that's a great question. And congratulations on catching up, by the way. Um, could Karathras be sensing the ring? Is that on the table? Burra Hobbit, I think that has to be on the table. We're going to see several examples of things that get stirred up and seem to notice the ring. Um, uh, yeah, and, and well, you're absolutely right. Karathras does have... A reputation. Right? There's no, no one, nobody would suggest that what Karathros is doing here is out of character, right? Um no one would be like, "What? Karathros tried to snow travelers in? That is so out of character it demands an explanation." Right? I like, know nobody nobody's going to say that, right? Um it's it's uncertain. It, it could just be they caught Karathros on a bad day, right? This is the kind of thing Karathros does. Maybe it was just Karathras doing one of those Karathras things at what was an inconvenient time for the Quest of the Ring, by coincidence, right? Can't rule that out in any way. Um, At the same time, does seem fairly significant, right? And I'm not sure that we can rule out the idea that Karathras either, A, is in fact somehow in league, with Sauron. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it I think is not impossible. Um, Or that it is somehow sensing and responding to the ring. Um, Remembering ahead, remembering ahead just to the next chapter, um, though it'll still be some time before we get there, um, remember there's going to be an implication of uh, a similar thing happening with the watcher in the water um, <clears throat> so uh we will um we will see about that, but um in any case um okay uh yeah, Dan, I wonder if i mean so far, there have been quite a number of evil has been drawn to Frodo at every step of his journey. There's the ring wraiths, obviously. Like, Sauron sent them out to find the ring. He's carrying the ring. That they're going to be drawn to him is, you know, a, right. That's kind of a, a given for the whole situation. But um, Old Man Willow, um, not every hobbit walking party that goes into the... I mean, Mary's been to the Old Forest a bunch of times and didn't get sucked down to the Withy Window by Old Man Willow's powerful singing, right? Um, so Old Man Willow, the Barrowites, and the Fog and the Barrow Downs. Um, and then, uh, and of course, we have Carothras uh, uh, here. We're going to have some... We're going to get the Watcher in the water. We're going to have fun in Moria, right? There are lots of things... That are going to be going right, sarcastic foxes. Absolutely, um, uh, yeah. So I mean, one might begin to suspect that uh, something is riling the stuff up as they go past, right? Um, uh, think of Frodo's own intuition back in Chapter Two book one, chapter two, Um, when he contrasts his prospective journey to Bilbo's, right? On the one hand, he feels he's going to follow in Bilbo's footsteps. On the other hand, um, he recognizes the very significant difference between the journey that he is undertaking and the journey that Bilbo undertook, right? Mine is no there and back again journey. He's going to go into evil, drawing it after him. Now, of course, he's thinking there of servants of the enemy and spies of the enemy uh, who might be searching for him or pursuing him. But it seems also quite possible that that is going to be true in a different sense as well. Yeah, there's the wolves too. Um, We'll get to them. We'll get to them fairly soon, actually. Uh, But... um, Anyhow, so yeah, I, so do I think it's possible that Karathras that has been stirred up? Yeah, yeah. Is Karathras um, is being territorial here? Does he sense the entrance of some power into his domain that he sees as, if not a threat, at least a, a sort of challenge, right? Um, you know, you you entered into my territory and I'm going to let you know what I think about that. Right. Um, You made, you, you came in here and you're never going to leave again. That in fact seems to be the pattern, doesn't it? I mean, like that was old man Willow's response. Um, That was the Barrow white's response. And now that's Caroth response as well. Um, You've come into my domain and I will keep you here by force and um, show that I'm the, uh, that I'm the stronger, right? Um, I think that that is what is implied um, by Gimli's um, words here specifically, Karathras has not forgiven us. Um, that idea of forgiveness. Karathras is the, the evil will of Karathras has not been expended towards them. Karathras he's still mad, right? He's still mad. Um he is. He has not backed down. This is only a pause in the assault against them by by Karathroth. Um, And I'm the other word that I'm really interested in. Um, by uh, by Gimli here is the word "fling." He has more snow yet to fling at us if we go on. I, it's an interesting word choice because fling seems to me rather a, um, yes, it is a slightly underwhelming word. Um, disdainful erred, I like that. That's, yes. On the one hand, I think that Gimli is implying basically that they ain't seen nothing yet, right? They think this is bad and that they're in a bad state right now. They should try either staying or going on, right? Um, on the one hand, yeah. In, in in a sense, Aranas, exactly. That was just a warning. It, I think is exactly one of the things that he's that he's saying. Um, but, um, yeah. Oh, to juice man, thank you. I was forgetting about the silence in Holland, which I also think we can understand to be a sort of reaction. Um, a sort of reaction, potentially, to the ring. Possibly a reaction to the, the that which is hunting the ring, conceivably. Um, but yeah, anyway, something along the lines. Um, now, Drowsnake is wondering if Gimli is being slighting to Karathras there. That if there's a little bravado in his use of the word fling, Right. Um, you know, he's kind of making light of Karathras' attacks. While, all the while saying, the sooner we go back and down the better, right? He's not recommending, uh, he's not just defying or setting at not the power of Karathras. Um, but at the same, not, at the same time, he's not talking like he's been intimidated either. I, I think that seems to me right. Um, that, um, it seems to have kind of both of those senses that is both to be a little bit of bravado on Gimli's side. He's not, um, you know, he doesn't scare so easily. Um, while at the same time he is, um, he's also acknowledging that what Carothras has done so far is less, less than he is capable um, of doing. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, the name Karathras um, is uh, that's Sindarin. Um, it means red horn. Um, the names are just translations of each other. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure that's right. I know, I know that Karath or Karas, the first part of it, is red, um, as I recall. Like uh, Karanthir, whose name comes from red as well because he's red-headed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, anyway, um, right, th- th- right so the second part is basically Hill. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't think the first one is ca- like a no, I don't think I don't. I don't think it does mean. I think it means Red Hill. I don't think it means Hill Hill. Um, the first part does look like uh, Karas, like uh, you know, uh, um, you know Galathon or something like that. But um, no, I think it. I think I, I think Red is the is the first part. Um, it's a similar word. It looks similar, but I, I think it's a different root. I'm treading on weak ground here. Uh, weak ground of my own knowledge, that is. Uh, my understanding of Cinder etymology is not great. Um, Karan is red. Yeah, that's what I'm... That's what I was... Uh, that's the root I was looking for, Trifle. Thank you. Um, yep, yeah, exactly. Red horn, I think, is just pretty much the thing. Um, and by the way, passages like this... Um, Not this, but the passage that we're referring to, the passage where all of the names are given, where, you know, where Gimli gives all three of the names for each of the three mountains, that's, you know, the little Rosetta Stone that Tolkien, the professor and philologist is providing us uh, to give us a little help in in learning how to read the Elvish languages, right? Um... But um, uh, yeah, yeah. anyway, um, Okay, so what was I um, what was I going to say after that? Hang on. Um, so back to forgiven. Gimli's emphasis is on,, you know, like the snow has stopped. But don't mistake this for peace. Notice this is the transition right from but the heights above were hidden in great clouds still heavy with a thread of snow and that's what Gimli's looking up at and shaking his head. Right? Don't think that just because the snow has stopped that we're done. If that Karathras is done. That, you know, maybe we'll be okay from here to hold off for long enough to try to get over the pass. Um, yeah. No. If we try to do that, it's gonna be, uh, it's going to get it's going to get even worse um yeah yeah exactly rns points out of course uh, the kuzdul name also yeah translates the same thing exactly in fact this passage is one of the most useful passages we have for understanding kuzdul actually um in the same uh, in the same place um okay um To this all agreed, but their retreat was now difficult. It might well prove impossible. Only a few paces from the ashes of their fire, the snow lay many feet deep, higher than the heads of the hobbits, in places it had been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts against the cliff. Um. I never noticed this before. But I wonder, who do you think is describing what is seen in paragraph 1 of this passage below their refuge were white humps and domes and shapeless deeps the the hobbits can't see it the sn- the snow is the snow is over their heads um i mean i know that there's a lower altitude that they could see down, but not if they can't see past the edge of their fire. Um, it is possible. I think that it has to be that they're doing this sort of in retrospect. That is, they're going to be put up higher on people's shoulders or on the ponies after, on the pony afterward. But, um, um, but yeah, I'd never noticed the, uh, the sort of irony there, which gives the impression well, it goes back to what I was saying about there being no people mentioned in that paragraph, right? We get nobody's individual experience, just the sort of disembodied description of the funereal silence and the shrouding snow. Um, Well, so it's a passage in which the perspective also becomes in context of this third paragraph, almost explicitly detached, at least from immediate Hobbit experience. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Nathan, that is a really interesting point. Um, the The tense shift to this all agreed but their retreat was now difficult. That is, he's pointing out, notice, this is all being written in the past tense. As the light grew stronger, below their refuge were, um, the heights above were hidden. Um, But that second sentence in the third paragraph, it shifts. It might well prove impossible. The retreat was now difficult. It might well prove impossible. That is, the narrator of this paragraph has shifted to telling things now, not as a historical record, right? Not as an account of a thing past, but instead of telling us we are brought into the perspective of the people who are shivering there next to their now extinguished fire. Um, it might well prove impossible, would certainly have been a thought. Especially if you're a hobbit. Um, uh, especially if you're a hobbit looking out at the snow and you can't even see over it. I mean, the hobbits have certainly never seen snow like this. Um, snowfall is rare in the Shire and considered a, uh, an opportunity for fun, right? Um, there's... No way that they will have gotten, you know, three, four feet of snow. Um, oh, yeah, it shifts back to it sh- it shifts back to the past tense right away. Only a few paces from the ashes of the fire the snow lay, many feet deep, past tense of lie, um, in places it had been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts against the cliff. Yeah, no, it, it goes straight back into the... it's only that one sentence. It might well prove impossible. That sentence is our glimpse not into the individual sensations or experience exactly of any of the characters, like of any you know, again we don't we're not told what Frodo is thinking, we're not told exactly like what Frodo's experiencing with his senses. Um uh, it might prove impossible um it is a it is a sentence that uh is is pointing is speaking of the situation as if it were future not as if it were a past tense thing right um it might well prove impossible nathan i i think that you're i think that you're very you're very right um uh, that that's a that's a very remarkable little shift that's easy to miss um, is it conditional or subjunctive no it's not conditional um, I don't believe it's subjunctive there's no there's no syntactical dis- uh, construction that would trigger the subjunctive mood which is only used in under sort of particular circuit. You do just start speaking in the subjunctive mood randomly. Um, you only do that <clears throat> under certain under certain constructions. Um. It might prove. Yeah, it might prove, um, What it's not doing, though, there's a. Va- it would stand out less tense wise if it used the perfect, right? Like this if it's if if it said and said, it might well have proved impossible, right? Um, it might have proved impossible. So using the present perfect there with might. Um, Notice how when you say that it might have proved impossible says clearly that it did not prove impossible. Um, It might have proved impossible is a clear statement that it did not, in fact, prove impossible. Like It might have proved impossible under some circumstances, but it didn't. Right. Um, Again, like, the the outcome is known, exactly as you say, Aranas. It's declared, right? By not using the perfect tense there, it is left. It might well prove impossible. As if we don't know what's going on here. And it's noteworthy because this kind of um, suspense isn't really a thing that Tolkien does a lot with. Occasionally, he will indulge in something which is meant to be you know a secret or a you know a reveal that comes later on and we're um, you're not supposed to know about it in advance Um, it's not very common but he does occasionally do that Um, like the bolsters (laughs) yeah Yes, in the sense the the way in which um I mean it's only a very brief one though, right they're told not to go to their rooms and then the shock of seeing what actually happened in their rooms at the inn and in brie um is they're not told in advance, and we're not told in advance, you know um they're just led in and then they see what happened but um But, like, the the suspense and the reveal that Peter Jackson invests in the bolsters at the Prancing Pony is alien to the... That does not happen uh, in the book. Tolkien doesn't play that game. Not there, anyway. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... um, Anyway, yeah, now, Radadier, you're absolutely right. Um, If we pause for a moment to think about this, it's not creating, like, real suspense. I mean, somebody survived to write this account in the past tense. And um, there are many books that don't really play by the rules when it comes to that. That is, there are many books which have like an omniscient narrator figure, and you're never supposed to ask the question, Who is the narrator writing this book? How does the narrator know what happened? Right? And if the book is in a first person frame, right? It's so the you know, the, the the person is telling their own story, um You know, most of the time you get to have the shrewd suspicion that that person survived in order to tell the story later on. But as I say, not all authors obey that rule, right? Sometimes they'll break that rule and just be like, well, you know, I'm not telling you how this story managed to come down or whatever. Um, But but Tolkien is very emphatically not breaking that rule, right? The... Textual structure of the Lord of the Rings is something he's very interested in, um, at least and prompts us to think about on many occasions. So, yes, you are absolutely right that the mere fact that we have a narrative from this proves that somebody (laughs) here survived um, this thing. And so, therefore, um, uh, uh, therefore. There isn't real suspense. And so therefore, what is what is the point? Not to deceive us, not to make us wonder, not to make us worry. I think, again, it is to bring us into the experience of the people there. But it's a different mechanism he's not just bringing us into the head of one of the hobbits and telling us what the hobbit is thinking. I think of all the different mechanisms he's used for that, the description of their physical sensations, telling us what they're thinking, uh, Sam's grumbling comments to Frodo, right? These are all mechanisms. Bill, the pony swishing his tail, right? These are all <laughs> mechanisms that the narrator has used or the narrators have used in order to uh, convey to us um, to make the situation sort of real to us, to to kind of bring us into that. Um, But this is a different, and in its way, a more direct one, right? This experience isn't being mediated through merely a report of the thoughts, words, or feelings of one of the characters who's involved. In this short sentence, we get a little, um, we get a little gesture. Uh, that brings us into that experience. It might well prove impossible. Like we as readers are asked to consider that possibility, as doubtless the hobbits are considering the possibility. Um, Can we possibly escape from this? Um, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen snow higher than your head. Um, I've only seen it a couple times in my life. And um, it's pretty intimidating. It's pretty intimidating. Uh, Attempting to get through snow that is as tall, as high or higher than your head is um, (laughs) non-trivial. Very much non-trivial. But again, it's not it's not localized. It's not, um, um, uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. First fish has dropped my intrepid two year old in three and a half foot snow once. Yeah. When I, um, I lived in upstate New York at one point when I was three. Uh, and, uh, my mom used to tie a rope around my waist, tie the other end to the porch and chuck me into the snow when it was way over my head. And I would just kind of like burrow around for a while and then she'd reel me in. Um, but um, anyway, um, so yes, so yeah, it's an interesting mechanism in this paragraph. The fact that the the heads of the hobbits are being used as the measuring stick, right, by which to convey to us exactly how um, exactly how deep the snow is. You feel like parents can't do that anymore, Jackie? Yeah, you're right. Probably uh, these days, the neighbors would probably report you. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, What I really would have wanted to do later on, not at three, I don't remember it at three, was jump off the roof into the snow when it's like four feet deep. Um, But um, anyhow... um, point is <laughs> back to the paragraph here um, the only reference to the hobbits, the only invitation that we get into the experience of the hobbits who are generally our frame of reference throughout the book is merely that illusion you know, the use of their height as a measure of the snow and it's, it's, it's very subtle it's very, you know, we don't he could have described you know you know, Mary's thoughts as he was looking up, you know, at the snow above his head and and or even like trying to describe the experience of being in this like bowl of snow that they can't see out of. Right. And wondering what the rest of the world looks like. And I mean, he could, totally could have given us a physical description from their point of view, which would have been kind of interesting. Right. Um, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do anything nearly that direct. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so... um, Anyway. Um, Yeah, I had never thought about that sentence before. But that is a really great observation. It's particularly intriguing... So I've been thinking a lot, writing the first few chapters, well, going back and writing what are now the first few chapters of my Exploring the Lord of the Rings book, uh, intensely interested in the uh, textual frame of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, So I've been talking a lot about that. Uh, And of course, I've been thinking a lot in that context about the one narrator figure that we never talk about uh, in these discussions. Um, we've had a lot of fun playing the who wrote which paragraph game, which is, which is great. And one of these days, as I said, I think there should be, a, I um, I think there should be a, like a color coded key that we make, uh, you know, to, to, you know, we, I don't know, we, we can vote or something, right. As to, you know, a full, a complete guide as to which, um, uh, which narrator is speaking in which paragraph we think. um, But there's a there's an entire narrator that we're missing, and that is the one who wrote every single one of these paragraphs. That is the modern translator um, who is sometimes a very active mediator of the text as, for instance, uh, when it goes. when we get when, when, when we get the reference to an express train in chapter one, right, in describing the fireworks that has to have been put in by the modern translator. Right. Um, where else? Where else might we be seeing the intervention of our researcher, compiler and translator from the Westron into English here? Um, yeah, we talked about him for the anachronism. Exactly. That's where it's easy to, um, uh, keep that, uh, keep that in, you know, where it's easiest to remember that. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think it's this. Yeah. April, I mean, that's what I'm wondering. Like, could this be an intervention? I don't know. I don't know. Um. Could the could that second sentence be a touch by the modern narrator? Um, is the was the original Westron perhaps using the perfect? It might well have proved impossible, and our translator says. This will be more interesting and suspenseful if I render this instead. It might well prove impossible. Stay tuned. Right? Um, maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, how much do we think the modern translator uh, is adding to the story? Exactly. I, I think it's a fascinating question. Um, something worth thinking about as we move forward. The question that I would have about that is what do we think are the signs? Like, what would we look for? I mean, anachronisms—that's obvious, right? Um, that's the that's the that's the screaming example. But um, are there? Oh, who do I th- who who wrote the Thinking Fox? Nancy? Oh, I think that's easy. I I, I think that's Bilbo. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah, the original Westron would probably have used the Aorist, possibly, Vardendale. Now, hang on. I've been learning about the Aorist tense. The Aorist tense is the past tense when you refer to a thing that probably happened once, right? Like, uh, not a thing that happened recurringly. Anyway, yeah. 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 A point-like event. That's exactly, just exactly it, Bjarnis Honor. I've am i gotten so much better at the Aorist tense recently. Um, next thing you know, I'll be able to explain the middle voice, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Flashbacks to college, Koine Greek. Yeah, I've been... Uh, Ex- experimenting with Koine Greek recently, so yeah, it's a Greek thing. Sorry, Mariel. Yeah, Greek, Greek, Greek language references. Um, okay. Um, anyway, I this sentence is enough to make me suspicious. That's why I was bringing it up. Um, it's enough to make me suspicious, but but I don't know that it proves it. Um. What we'd have to do is look for some kind of trend that we could, you know, there, there has to be some kind of evidence that we can point to. Some kind of tendency that would seem better to fit the modern translator than the original Hobbit authors. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. Let's, um, it's, uh, yes. Trifle, that's a really great suggestion. Um, looking at, uh, looking at idioms. Yeah. Idioms are almost certainly not a direct translation or at least trifle. Not if they, not if they make sense. (laughs) Right. Um, an idiom that sounds particular, you know, that sounds pretty weird might, um, might not be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, yes. Um, well, let's um, uh, let's stay at home with this one trifle. What about the v- the verb shrouded? It is possible that. Frodo, as by default, unless we have reason, you know, Frodo is our default narrator. Assuming it's Frodo who wrote that paragraph, he might have used that word. Like, he might have used a death Paul metaphor for it. Um, though nothing else in the paragraph elaborates that. Right, like this, we're not getting this whole series of, uh, sh- like, grave, imagery, which would suggest pretty strongly that it was part of the original. It's just, it's just that one word, right? Um. Yeah. That is exactly. So, in choosing an English word, to translate whatever the Westron adjective was there. Participle, really. Um, Yeah. Well, but I think if we're not going to be, if we're not going to go too crazy, um, we are going to have to um, we're going to have to assume a certain degree of faithfulness in the translation, but what do you think the translator's could we, could we recreate, could we, um, you know, sort of reverse engineer our Westron translator's theory and approach to translation based on how it's phrased? Ah. Um, That would be fun. In a, like especially geeky kind of way. Um, I think just based on what good English it is, we would have to assume that he was a fairly flexible translator. See what I mean? That is to say, like, A translation which sticks really, really close to the original, which is trying to render something literally, um, is usually not very good English, by definition, because it's not really following English patterns. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, (laughs) you're right, Mario. (laughs) the unnamed translator would be doing one of my pet peeves and making the poetic translations rhyme it's true it's true um yeah 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 okay well I don't think we can go too far down this road uh this way very very great digression lies um yeah yeah yeah, 2 JSM, that seems sensible. I'm um, oh, sorry. Oh, wait, no, sorry. there's switching around. I was reading Justin's comment. I think the modern translator wouldn't remove so much from the Westron, but rather they would either recontextualize things for modern audience or uh, to make things sound more exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. All um, right. Oh, yeah, okay. Scott, uh, we'll wrap it up after this. On the subject of um, grammatical minutiae, it is an interesting point. Um, He's looking at the last sentence. In places it had been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts against the cliff. Yes, that is the passive voice. Um, The primary reason that the passive voice is being used in this um, sentence is for the very good reason that um, the snow is the subject of the sentence, right? Um, And the snow didn't do anything uh, other than fall, I suppose. Um, uh, But it is talking... So it is talking about what has happened to the snow, what has been done to the snow. Um, But I do think... um, I do think that one of the a sort of secondary functions of the... Uh, so you you use the passive voice for a couple different reasons. Yes, it's true, Scott. If you're a politician, you use it to, to hide your own fault. Um, <laughs> snow drifts were made. Exactly, Wobe. Um, but... Um, but that's not the primary... That's not the, That's not a good reason to use the uh, the passive voice. A good reason to use the passive voice is when you want to... When the focus of your sentence and what you want to keep the focus of your readers on is the object of the action rather than the subject of the action. Here, it's a sentence about the snow. You're talking about the snow, so you talk about what has been done to the snow. It had been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts against the cliff. Um... But one of the almost inevitable consequences, uh, no, one of the absolutely inevitable consequences of the passive voice is it de-emphasizes the doer of the action, right? Now, technically, it's the wind. By the wind um, is the prepositional phrase by which the doer of the action is being pointed to here, right? Uh, The way to transform that clause into the active voice would be to say, In places, the wind had scooped and piled the snow into great drifts against the cliff. That is the active voice version of that sentence. But by saying in places it had been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts against the cliff, you're de-emphasizing the wind because it's not the wind you're talking about. The wind is in the past anyway, right? Um, What you are interested in is the snow and what has been done to the snow. Um, but there is also um, so the inevitable effect is to de-emphasize the doer of the action a more subtle and not quite inevitable but very frequent um, uh, result of using a passive voice is um, creating almost a sort of air of mystery about the doer of the action, right? Um, some the passive voice can make an action sound like it just happened, right? Um, now, again, not in this case because it says by the wind, it, it acknowledges that the wind did it, and yet there is something. Uh, there is something that. There is something involved here, right? Karathras is also sort of looming vaguely behind this use of the passive voice as well, right? Um, In a sense, it had been scooped and piled by the wind into great drifts is like a a sort of a different a passive voice version of, um, you know, like Karathras has more snow yet to fling at us, right? Gimli is pointing directly to Karathras as... The source and origin and cause of all of these actions, of all of this snow and wind and storm, which is all targeted at them, and not just happening. But it's one of the sort of questions that um, you've got the facts that are surrounding them, the scene that they can see, and then you have in the middle of it Gimli's interpretation of the scene, right? Well, let me tell you why this ha- you know, Karathras has not forgiven us. Karathras did all this stuff the mountain did all this stuff on purpose against us Um, and we get that sort of hint the passive voice um, the thing happening um you know, by the de-emphasized subject in the, in this context, when you have things happening around you, the wind is blowing and the snow is falling and, uh, mounting up around you. And this sense of disembodied malice that someone is doing that to you, but you can't see them doing it. Right. You just see the storm around you. And, uh, if you're Gimli, you know, there's something unseen that's causing it. Um, yeah, emphasis by de-emphasis, silk Westket. something like that, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and agreed, Bjorning. Uh, the suspicion, but not confirmation, of Karathras being the actor, yeah, increases the suspense of this uh, of this whole episode. Absolutely, and not to mention Bjorning, as we were talking about earlier on, the suspicion, doubt, concern. Wonder of like, okay, even if it is Carathras, what does that mean? I mean, is he calling an audible here, <laughs> right? Is this just him? Is this just Carathras being Carathras? Or is there something else? Has Sauron discovered them? Um, remember Gandalf reviewing himself all the way down to the mouths of the Anduin, right? Uh, Gandalf is here, writing it in the sky. Um, how, How much trouble are they in now, even if they escape? Is the enemy upon them is that what this means, right? What does this situation mean? Is one of their big, uh, one of their big, uh, one of their big questions. Um, yeah, so all oh, good stuff. All right, I'm gonna let you guys go. It's field trip time. Thanks for joining me. I should be back again next week. I'll learn better not to blithely assume that that's gonna happen, but so far as I can see, for here, uh. Uh, from here, um, assuming that um, uh, that the, the the that, you know, New England has forgiven us, um, uh, I shall join you again uh, next week. And we will continue uh, one of Boromir's wonderful moments, continuing this really heavily Boromir focused episode of the trip up into the mountains. All right. In the meantime, we are going to... Um, uh, head over to our field trip. Uh, Thanks for joining us, for those of you who um, were only able to join um, for the book discussion this evening. Yeah, one of these days my game is going to stop crashing. But that
1: is not this day.
0: Yeah, exactly. Hang on a second. Okay. There we go. All right. Be in and back in just a second. Good evening, Druids Fire. How are you?
1: I'm doing peachy keen. How are you, bitcher?
0: Excellent. Excellent. I was going to say, good to hear your disembodied voice again. But, of course, I was hearing your disembodied voice all weekend, too. So, there we go. Down in Florida.
1: Where I was not.
0: Yes, sadly. Okay. I'm not sad about it, I
1: don't like Florida <laughs> whether or yeah.
0: not friends No, but I'm still sorry you weren't there with us It was fun, and quite beautiful It wasn't too hot Oh yeah, so totally yeah. um, All right Back In we go um, And sadly, Valori couldn't make it this evening um, oh, wow. She's uh, uh, She is not unwell but she is parenting this evening she has uh, uh, probably not yet arrived home from her child's. Uh, she, she has a kid doing uh, a drama production and it's uh, dress rehearsal night, I believe. So Sadly, she could not be here. Okay. Alright. So, as I recall, when last we were together, which... Feels a very long time ago. Um, uh, we were yes, we had reset the milestone to Härna. So there we go. So let's return to Härna in the middle of Cardolan. There we go. So we're right here. We are coming to Härna. So we've explored. Oops. Just lost my map. Um, okay, we've explored Ruddymoor down here, and most of Tirn and Dal Ernil up. So we're uh, we're pretty good on the um, uh, sort of the westernmost third or so of this map. We're gonna look around mm-hmm. the village of Herna here, and then I think I think I want to go to Tharbad last. So I think after this we should head up and go over into uh, Andrath over there.
1: Okay, we've, we've kind of been to Andrath, except I don't think we've gone to Gondor or Call.
0: No, we didn't. We we, we we came down the road, but we, we haven't gone we haven't gone east of the road there. So, alright. So this village of Haren, with the beautiful blue flowers, what a lovely little village. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we can notice, sorry, I got my... Uh, Quests blocking my screen here. Okay, the first thing that we can notice here is who lives here, and that seems perfectly obvious. The moment you look around, the buildings look just like Brie. Um, so culturally speaking, this town seems to be—I mean, I, I clearly a human town. And from people who are in some way related or connected historically uh, to the Bree people, I think the buildings down here are a little bit smaller, but we can see the same kind of wattle and daub walls and things. You know, the sort of Tudor style. Um,
1: these like walking in Stratford upon Avon.
0: Yeah, these um, these sort of bluish-gray slate roofs um, feel different from Brie. I
1: don't think Brie has the bluish slate, for sure.
0: No, I don't think so. That may be like a local thing. Um, though I certainly the stone around here certainly doesn't look like that. But maybe there there's a, a place where they get it. Um, it certainly sets off the blue flowers just gorgeously. Indeed so. Um now hmm okay. So where exactly are we? We're like what I'm looking at is the geography here. We're in the this sort of lower city and these roads, there's this just tangle of roads here in town that I can't really so the roads that are meeting here there's the road that goes mm-hmm. down to Minhiriath, and there's the road that goes down the greenway continues down to Tharbad and then the greenway continues up obviously as we know towards Bree and then out towards Sarn Ford but then there's this like loop I mean it's like Harren has a beltway here which is I don't quite understand why it does um but however that came about. Um, Ooh, look. A denizen. Hi there. Okay. We've got this cloth sort of long tunic beneath the leather armor which is very plain and rather boring. No interesting carvings. Nothing... dangling down huh
1: they're more simple folk they're not really into a lot of ornamentation apparently
0: yeah not giving me any clues here okay door hinges are a little fancy okay Is it just me, or are the buildings a little grungier than they are in Bree? are
1: just a little bit, yeah.
0: Aren't the the whites in the wall a little whiter in Bree as well?
1: I believe they are. I mean, they do look a little bit dirty down here.
0: Gives the sense of being more... more Yeah, Rhonda, I wonder whether it's because of a difference in weather patterns down here. It also could be yeah, it could be just they don't are not able to keep it up as much. Um. Wow. Okay, interesting clothing and decorations roundly counter-indicated in this town. Okay, this guy's wearing a hat a little skull cap. That's um, not very interesting. But distressingly, the most interesting thing we've seen. Ooh, this guy's got a little little action here. He's still got a belt tied around his waist. What's the sash business going on here? He's just wearing a sash. Okay, now she's oh, got a rope
1: belt.
0: Yeah, she, she's got a rope belt too. I thought she had a decoration there, but no, it's just a rope. We're all wearing rope belts. Nice little headband this guy's got. Huh. Yeah, nobody has any decorations. Any like, there's no car. There are no carvings anywhere in town. I've seen no, no statues. Think... What do we get at the? Anything at the fountain up here?
1: Not really. It's just oh, look! There's a ones. little
0: decoration. Look at yeah. We got a little, little a little swirl
1: above the little swirl place.
0: things. They're a little little fancy work there up above the spouts. That's that's literally the best we've gotten so far. Very plain.
1: Yeah,
0: very plain.
1: It gives me the feel of like, okay, this is not the capital of the area sort of situation.
0: Yeah, well, it's
1: it like, is a little you know,
0: bleak. It is a little bleak, Scott. Yeah, and very rustic. I, Well, but it's hard to say. I mean, we haven't seen anything, have we, that's not ruinous down here so far? I mean, is this the only thriving modern town? I mean, I, you know, a thriving. I'm, I'm, I'll go with that. Um, but, I mean, this is the only town we've seen, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Apart no from I the rangers
0: out. at Sarnford in their little hut.
1: No, this is the first proper town that we've seen.
0: Yeah, that's not just full of dead folks. Yeah, okay. And in fact... So this... This part of town is huge. I mean, look, we have three-story buildings. Four-story buildings. If you count the garrets at the top. I mean that's really high for buildings like this. I mean four-story buildings—that's a big deal. Um,
1: it's like they gathered like all of the the folks in the area. and Now they just live in this one town. And instead of building out, they built up.
0: And then I think they built out mm-hmm. because so we've got this area with the cobblestones. Right. All right. So we got this area with the cobblestones all around, you know, up here in the, ta- but then like down the part of town that we came in at. Right. You go down the steps. So this is all on this little raised, you know, uh, plateau, little mini plateau here. Right. And then down here, you've got these extra. Now the cobbles, you notice are, Far further apart out here, no, maybe not so much.
1: They look like they have the star design on them,
0: though. If you look at them, I was noticing that, I was noticing that. So, um, but anyway, these this this looks like spread to me, right? Like Like when they couldn't fit any more buildings, yeah, they just started building new houses out here on the outskirts of town. Um, and yes, Tomas, you're right, there are no walls. Um, now even old Bree Invisible. seems to have walls. Yeah, they do look like salvaged stone for cobbles. Um, you know, we do we can see stars, but let's not forget the Greenway comes straight through here, and the Greenway is consistently uh, cobbled with carved. With carving stones, let's let's just go out of just a touch out of town because greenway this
1: doesn't come directly into town. As you noticed, there was the loot there.
0: So well, that's this what it's that, kind of that's like what a I want to see. travel so stop. This right here, this is the Greenway, because this is the road that goes down to Tharbad across the stream and then up. So this south of town. That's why I wanted to head out this way. Um, And we're seeing the same stones here. So see, I don't think that these are reclaimed. I think that these are the original cobbles that were used when the people of Gondor and Arnor cobbled this whole stinking road, you know, stretching from Gondor to Fornost. Um, And... Which leads me to wonder. So if this is the greenway coming up, I hear what you're saying that the, like, the beltway of Herna here may be... Um, see, and look how spaced out these are. These are not, like, would... These have been spaced out because you know that the Gondorians didn't like... And now, let us, like, pave the driveway to these people's house, right? Like... That clearly didn't happen. So, these, at some point in the past, like presumably when this house was built, they they dug some up, right? They stretched them out to reach the, you know, like let's uh, let's use a bunch of these old stones. And as we can see, there are big old gaps, and they've spread them out here.
1: Definitely recycled some some stonework for real.
0: Yeah. So you are suggesting that the greenway, this, this the, the greenway, actually continued around this way, which I can believe. And this is right. This is the big loop that then heads around, and then it's going to then continue up towards Breeze. So that seems that seems very plausible. But this raises the question: then, was this town here when the greenway was built?
1: Maybe, um, or else, because we, we see the same stonework on the on the cobbles above him. Yeah. So my personal thought is, again, like, maybe because I'm going to Boston as soon as we get <laughs> done here, um, that maybe it was a travel stop that was like, oh, hey, there's this little place. We can put a little town here. People can hang out. I have a little hotel going on. And, you know, there's a so, can, because there's
0: always going to be an in. On the one hand, of course, they've just come from Tharbad. And it's hard to tell what with um, Lotro scale, <laughs> right? It's hard <laughs> to tell in actual Middle-earth scale how long would it have been, like how long a journey would it have been from Tharbad up to Hanna. Obviously, Tharbad, you stop at Tharbad, right? I mean, you know. You're right. in the old days, you're traveling the green way up to Fornost, you stop at Tharbad, um, which is obviously the biggest town pretty much until you get to Fornost, right? Um, yeah, pretty much. But um, so clearly, you know, you avail yourself of the hospitality of Tharbad on the way through. You know, would Herna be a sort of a pit stop, you know, like a day's ride off or something? Um, yeah, Scott says, if the town wasn't there, the road you know the road would just go straight through without the huge, crazy bend. Yeah, the bend does seem insane. Um, and frankly, even with the town here, it strikes me as a little crazy. like, why wouldn't it just go straight through the middle of town? Um, you know, with the town building up around it if it were just a waypost there, but instead, we' go straight up to this building now this building, theoretically. Could have postdated it, but they wouldn't have rerouted it with all the stones around there. Nah. They would
1: have had to like torn down like done a lot of lot more earthworks to get a road. I think they're just avoiding this
0: hill. I think they're just avoiding this hill. I mean, with these cliffs and stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you don't you don't want to you 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 wouldn't want to bring you your horses around. through here. Well, okay. I say, and then, you know, Belinda comes riding on the on a horse right through here. But, you know what I mean, yeah. Terrain avoidance. Exactly. Exactly. And if you have carts or um, uh, you know, carriages. Yeah. So I think it's just terrain avoidance. I mean,
1: um, there's, and there's also all these other places like you see the big tower there for Karanos. You know, Tregor thought used to be a Big honkin' city of some kind, you know, big right. massive earthworks one. So it's like, well, you know, this is like the, the you know going out to the country and you know getting away from the town for a while. Yeah. So you're not gonna throw a lot of time and effort and money into making it flat and more passable. Yeah. Like the country lodge.
0: Sure. Okay. But I think. We have not seen any evidence. What have we seen? Well, oh, no. OK, Phew! that's falling down for good. Um, what have we seen around here that was built? So theoretically, we have three different historical epochs that we're considering in this location, right? One would be contemporaneous. Well, OK, even ignoring the first or second age construction, right? Like an elf party hall or something okay. like that. But it, it, disregarding it, thinking only of, of, of human building. Um, three different epochs, right? We have the old Arnorian epoch from when the Greenway was first being built, um, when Arnor and Gondor both are still in full, um, in, in their full power. Then the second epoch would be during the Arnorian Civil War, and that would have been the time during that second stage that um, uh, what well, you were just talking about. What is it, Tiron gorthod As you said, yeah, right. When Tiron gorthod would have been, because that's when the the came down here and started building their cities, right? So, yeah. though, so that would have been thriving not in the first epoch, but in the second epoch, right? The third epoch then is then after the fall of Cardolan, um, and you know, what has been happening since then. And that's where, as I said, apart from the, the little, you know, shed that the rangers built near Sarn Ford, we haven't yet seen anything in all, oh, okay, and apart from that caravan spot, um, we haven't seen anything in all of Cardolan that suggested construction in that third epoch. So in trying to figure out which epoch, which historical epoch this village was built in, I think I'm going with third. And the primary it makes sense to
1: me.
0: Yeah, the primary reason is as people were pointing out, there's um uh there's no there's no evidence of any fortification. Every single building that we have seen from either of the first two epochs has been A made of stone, B some kind of Tower or fortress, or at least like, I mean, there was that one pleasure gazebo, right? Right, And that thing Mm -hmm. up on the hill, that tower up on the hill, looks gazebo-esque. That does not. That's not a a fortification up there on the hill that we're looking at, straight up to the northeast. Um, So, but but still, like that's what they tend to look like, and I can see from here that that's going to be a second epoch. Uh, 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 construction up there but I would think if they did build something down here it would have been a tower, a cast there'd be walls, or evidence of walls right, somewhere a little fragment, a little ruin Um, but just houses with little waist high stone walls Uh, that could
1: build a time of peace yeah. And there was like nobody
0: around pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, now, of course, the thing to keep in mind Bree looks like this too, and Bree predates all of it, right? Bree's been there forever. Um, since, you know, the second or even possibly the first age. So, the f- mere fact that this looks like this with wooden houses and stuff, but remember, even Bree had a wall. Um, A mostly ruinous wall. wall. Yeah, but even, you know, we'll remember from the, um, you know, examinations of Bree ever so long ago. um, years, Yeah, that um, we could see an Arnorian wall, which is presumably put up during that first epoch, during the height of Arnorian rule. Um, But it does not, um, uh, it does not mean that, um, but there was also an older wall, which I think was something like the original wall of Brie. Now, I agree, Arnos, that you know he asks how much of the construction in Brie actually predates the walls. I mean, those wooden houses, wooden houses like that can last for centuries. Um, you know, I have, and I'm sure many others have been in uh, buildings that look quite like that, Tudor buildings in England that are, you know, 500 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but not five thousand years old, right? I mean, you can't build a, you know, a wattle and daub wooden house like this that's gonna, you know, last all the way from ancient Mesopotamia you know, to the modern day. Like, that's um, you'd have to rebuild your wooden house, uh, is what I'm saying, right? Like, so, um, so it is true that the houses that we see in Brie are a modern construction, must be a modern construction. They can't last for millennia, those houses. Um, The fact that the Brelanders have lived there in Brie for millennia may well be, but they didn't always live in houses like this. Um, And I agree, Rowan, the the, the plaster here does look rough. Yeah, no, they they certainly rebuilt them. Um, It does look rough here. Um, But um, Right, exactly, Marielle. If you see wood that's a thousand years old or thousands of years old um, at archaeological sites, it's uh, because it got petrified, right? And this is not petrified wood here. So I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. I think Brie is older than this because of the old wall is the reason I primarily think that. Um, I think that this was probably... That these are people from Brie who came down here after the fall of Cardolan and, you know, they would have come down the Greenway, of course, from Brie, right? Coming down the Greenway, looking for um, you know, a place to, to live and set up new homes, and they got to this place where the road takes that crazy roundabout curve in order to avoid this plateau, and are like, hey, look at that plateau. Right? Nice, elevated, gorgeous view. Flat on top and easy to build on, but um, you know, kind of protected. Uh, uh, you know, on this side gives you a nice little. You know, the aurochs can't just wander straight up here, or that even more threatening spotted doe. Right, we'd be safe from all of those dangers, and we could, um, we could, we could settle up here. Yeah, I think that seems likely. As for the stones.
1: The stones are a bit puzzling because they're definitely not the red rocks that we're seeing for everything around us.
0: No, and what's more, they're definitely Greenway stones. I mean, they're definitely stones that cobble, you know, these are definitely um, Numenorean cobblestones. Um,
1: I was also thinking just about these stone walls around the place. Those are not local stones either.
0: That is a little odd. I mean, stone walls of that kind are almost always stones that are unearthed in the building process. Being from New Hampshire, I know all about that. The um, State? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you can't dig six inches into the ground around here without running into large rocks like that. Um, there are a lot of ruins around here. Is it possible... That the stones are reclaimed from ruins?
1: Fair rather enough, than, Yeah. Not that far away, honestly. I
0: think... Okay, here's why I think it is. I, I, I think that is likelier. The only problem is that the Greenway north and south of town looks like this, too. Um because if we look at this, like, look at this... like these pieces with the stars off center, right? And some border around them. Like, nobody cut a cobblestone to look like that. And when we see patterned cobblestones on the Greenway, like down in Enidwyth, for instance, um we see this, you know, the stars and trees are clearly, you know, centered on the cobblestone, like it was put there on purpose. But these do look like reclaimed, more like reclaimed ruins than cobbles. Again, in which case, then why? I think the only explanation would be that the, the later people, the later denizens, the builders of Harna here, who were reclaiming the ruins to use for cobbles for their streets, that the Greenway, the original cobbles of the Greenway had vanished, either been absorbed into the ground or hauled away long before or something like that. Um, and But they wanted to use the road so they were using the, the you know maybe there was still maybe there was still somebody down at Tharbad that they were trading with so they wanted to uh, they, they wanted to sort of repave the road down to Tharbad and up towards Bree um, and they did it with these ruined stones the same ruined stones that they used to pave the streets in Harna here that's conceivable to me that seems to work out yeah. makes a lot of sense to me as well yeah okay well very interesting but this ironically Bree has clearly been redone more recently right mm-hmm. again that's why it looks so much less grungy the plaster is really in bad shape here on a bunch of these buildings um, well Bree is more of not
1: really a north and south traffic area but is it east and west so there's a lot of need for it to be more up to date. Down here there there's nobody traveling except well, these days the southern's going north point. Hmm.
0: Right, right. Yeah. But no, you're right. I mean, this is kind of it's 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 like Brie. These people are from Brie originally, but this is this is this is the sticks. This is the hinterlands. Um and Yeah, well, I don't know if it's true that the people aren't in great shape, but they certainly aren't rich. They are not rich, either in money or in art. Ooh, look at those lovely baskets. Those baskets are the fanciest thing I've seen in town. And what a lovely picnic hamper. This lady must be a basket weaver. And look at her nice colored dress, too. And she's not wearing a rope belt. Oh, this woman's got it going on. The design on the front of her belt is almost pictorial. Not quite. Yeah. fancy shoes
1: and everything.
0: Oh, she does have fancy shoes. this This is like one of the weeding citizens of this whole town. Yeah, is she. From, maybe she's from out of town. You're right. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. All right. Well, we are running late, so I'm going to let everybody go. Thanks for joining. We've uh, we've. Uh, well, I don't know if we have solved the mystery of Heron, but we've uh, we've come up with a good theory for it anyway. And uh, next time we will not. I think actually I wanted to take a jog down towards Minhiriath, which we can't get to yet. Um, yeah, but I wanted to, to kind of look down this road to see if there were any other ruins or anything that we could see and then we will head back up towards uh, Gond Orkhal and Karinost across the, across the river there um, and we will continue going sort of clockwise here around Cardolan from here and then thence down to Tharbad and across to Swanfleet so that'll be the plan alright, thank you everybody, thanks for joining me Good night all, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.
1: Bye.